What is Agent Ignite? Get educated on current and forecasted market trends and valuable insight on real estate-related topics from accredited experts, giving you a competitive edge in the industry. Sign up for the next Agent Ignite session at theruthteam.com slash events. That's T-H-E-R-U-E-T-H team.com forward slash events. And when I got into the multifamily five years, six years ago, we were doing getting in and out in 18 to, to 36 months. And one of the things that I realized, is, you know, especially right now, it's really a hot market to get in, get out. Are you buying for cash flow? Are you buying with a, a long-term hold business plan? Is it 18 months or is it seven to 10 years? Well, our guest today, Bruce Willett, is going to go into what he thinks about that and why he thinks you're going to be successful one way or the other. Uh, he's a founder, visionary, current owner of Bakerson. The proven track record of success throughout Bakerson's nearly 20 years in business with thousands of individual units bought, repositioned, and sold. Bruce has overseen all aspects of the business, including operations, acquisitions, project leadership, equity fund management, property-specific syndications, legal, finance, and more. I enjoyed this conversation with Bruce a lot because there's a lot of talk about, you know, how long as an investor, you know, should I expect to hold that project, especially on the active side, but also as a passive investor, you know, do I want to be in that deal that's seven to 10 years or longer, you know, and I'm not be able to get my money back? When's that, you know, how should I feel about that? And Bruce lays out some pros and cons to that, that you need to think about whether you're on the active side or passive side, you're going to learn a lot by thinking through that. But I, I also, unexpectedly, we got into some of Bruce's daily habits and daily routines that I was very impressed by. And he has something he calls the 11531. I've never heard of this before, and I, I'm intrigued by it. I think you're going to learn a lot from that if you will stop to think about what he meant by, he lays it out, 11531. I, I think it's going to be something I may try very soon, and I hope you will as well. Bruce, welcome back to the show. I know you were, you're a repeat guest, and you were on you know, show number WS336, which was quite some time ago. September 2019. So welcome back to the show. I know a lot's happened since then. and uh, But there's some things right now that you were working through that you were speaking to a little bit before we got started about. Investors are hungry to get in and out of deals quickly. And I want to you know just hear your thoughts on that but because you're focusing a lot on why that may be a problem. Uh, and especially in our current economy, things that are happening. But let's jump in. Why is that a problem? And why are you focused on that? Well, thanks again for having me on. I'm really excited to be on your show again. So we've been in the, the syndication. We're operating who syndicate. So we operate first and we syndicate some deals we do, most deals we do, but some we don't, uh, but we're operators first. And when I got into the multifamily five years, six years ago, we were doing getting in and out in 18 to, to 36 months. And one of the things that I realized is, you know, especially right now, it's really a hot market to get in, get out. Arizona's market is insane right now. What the people profit taking that's going on, it's really exciting to see. But the challenge I have is, and I've asked a few of the investors that, you know, consistently put the sponsors out of work. And and that being said, at some point with the market shift right now, at some point we're going to have where people aren't going to quite realize their numbers and there's going to be a little bit of a panic, I think, on some of these operators and the investors. And so our goal, and we can dive deeper if you'd like, but our goal is to buy for longer hold and buy cash flow and weather that storm and then sell when it's right for us to buy something else as opposed to trying to time the market. You know, we're seeing interest rates going up and a lot of that will be covered in the short term with the some of the equity costs are dropping still, which is making, which cover that 
gap and then also increased rents significantly recover a lot of the increase in cost to loans. But at some point, we're going to have a squeeze on. Yeah, please dive in even more. I mean, on why you know that investors should be thinking more long-term versus wanting to get their, their money out quickly or maybe some myths that you see that are you know commonly believed by investors that are, that are wanting to turn that deal over quickly. I'm not good at prognostication, predicting the future, but I, I do know that markets are cyclical. And at some point, we're going to have a pullback. Is it now or 2025 or 2030? You know, we don't know. There's many experts out there that have their crystal ball that they're telling where it's going to be. So I think we have, you know, two to three more years of this. But when the market shifts, let's say we're at an uncertain market, more uncertain than it is right now, as far as interest rates. And we see and you need to refinance or sell. It's not a good time to sell because the market's jittery. So you go to re- refinance. Well, the lender is going to say, hey, I'll refinance, but you need to bring some more money into the table to get this loan. We're not going to do a 70 or 80 percent LTV. We'll do a 65 and the new LTV because of cap rate expansion. You're going to be stuck with a, a property and or stuck with a, a loan that you need to get out of because it's due. Let's say it's due in three years and you got to get out of that loan and there's no exit unless you bring more capital in. So what if you planned longer than that? Let's get in over the next two to three years, maximize the value of the property and then go for a refinance and then hold it for the next seven to 10 years. Yeah. So so many just safety nets, right? Uh, around being willing to put that timeline out longer. Are, are, are there any ways that maybe you've seen other operators actually get in those predicaments like you're talking about, or maybe some things that uh, have helped you to improve your game a little bit, you know, to build this thought process of, hey, let's, let's think long-term versus short-term. I don't know, just think about any specific examples. You know, I've been in real estate since 2002, and was in houses. And then we got into multifamily, what, five, six years ago. And if you look at what happened in 2010, 11, 12, those people that were buying in six, seven, and eight ended up having foreclosures in 10, 11, 12, and, and things were on sale. And so if they would have had better loans, they could have weathered that storm. My mentor has 53 years experience in multifamily investing, and he buys cash flow. He does not buy, does not chase equity, does not chase, or he chases equity and enforced equity where he can do value add, but he does not chase appreciation. He says you get appreciation, but he doesn't pursue that. He's looking for cash flow. So I feel if you can buy cash flow today, and the market shifts, you just got to buy right and be conservative. And then you can hold it longer term. 10 years, we'll be in a different cycle. No doubt about it. Yeah, you mentioned, I think it's interesting, you know, you got to be around people that have experience like that, right? More experience than you do. That's, you know, 50 plus years. That's that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, And uh, so speak to, you know, finding those properties right now that are cash flowing. I love that, you know, buying for cash flow. That's one way we also reduce risk because we want properties that are cash flowing today, right? Uh, And so, you know, how are you all finding those properties today that are cash flowing? Well, we're not finding that in Phoenix. Right now in Phoenix, people are buying on pro forma and selling on pro forma. And to me, that's that's quite dangerous. Is it exciting? Sure. Is there big money in it? Absolutely. There's big money. People are making really good money right now, but it's not going to last. And that's what concerns me. So where are we buying cash flow? We're buying, we have a property in Sierra Vista, which is Southern Arizona, small market. Uh, we have an apartment in Albuquerque. And now we have one in, uh, in escrow that we're closing on here in May in Fort Worth, Texas. And we're able to buy those for and they're cash flowing day one, which is really, really exciting, but not in Phoenix. You mentioned, you know, folks buying and selling own pro forma. Uh, Would you just speak to what that means? I know we use that lingo in our industry a lot, uh, but just for the listener that may not understand what that means a little bit, what what do you mean when you say, you know, buying, selling own pro forma? There's actuals, which are actual income and expenses. And then people project that say, hey, if you raise the rents 150 per door, it increases the value by X. And therefore, all you have to do is get that to X to get 
your cap rate. So if you want a, let's say you want a stabilized cap rate of six, on actuals, it might only be a two and a half or a three. So you say, hey, if I get it to this level, then I can be at a six cap. Then I have good returns for my investors. It's a stable property. And then when they go to sell it, they haven't even reached six. They might be at four and they've done a little value add. They've created some value there. And then they sell it again on a, hey, you can get it to a six cap by doing X or get to a five and a half, whatever that number is. And or they say rents have outperformed what we had projected, which is happening right now. And so they got a, the cap all of a sudden at six is even a bigger number because the rents are doing better. And I appreciate that. I just want to make sure our listeners understand. And then, but you mentioned, you know, you're finding deals. It sounds like you're going to different markets, you know, than, than where you maybe were typically buying. You know, speak to, you know, what other types of markets are you looking for? What's specific about those markets that made it worth your time to go and investigate and find a deal? And, and then we'll dive in a little more. The markets that we like are 750,000 MSA and, and higher. It started in Phoenix and we did most of our projects in Tucson, which is about a million. MSA. So we're looking at you know Salt Lake City, Albuquerque. Then Dallas Fort Worth is a little bit larger than that. They're like 10 times that or, or seven and a half million, I think, in their MSA. So it's a huge metroplex. The reason we like DFW is, is there's properties that kind of fall through the cracks. We're finding those. And I know by saying this, people will probably do some more searches on it. But if you want to be under 100 units, 60s and 70s build, there's less competition. There's very little competition. But if you get 80s build and newer and it's 200 units and up, there's a ton of competition for those. So you just need to carve out what, what niche do you want and what uh, market level uh, or property level do you want? And we're not afraid of the CC minus. We keep it in a C. That's another thing we do is we buy C properties and we maintain a C, but we make it a place that's safe, functional, durable, and clean. So there, there's a thought right there. Speak to your business plan of going in and, and keeping it as at a C as opposed, you know, everybody hears, well, we're going to improve it. We're going to take that C plus to a B minus or, or whatever, but talk through the business plan of, hey, you know, we're maybe we're in a C location, but we're going to keep this property C but we know just by uh, improving what we have here, we're still going to have a better property or better income or what is the, what are your thoughts around? I believe, and I'm pretty passionate about this, the most underserved population is the lower, their demographic is the lower middle class and the upper lower class. It's a growing and pretty large group of people, but in major cities, they're having a hard time affording to live in the places they work. So we really focus on not trying to hurt those we're trying to help. Now we will push rents to market. We buy a property that's at 750 and we see market as comps are 950 for similar property. We're going to push to 950. We're not going to you know be foolish about it on the business level, and it will it will cause some people to have to move out. But if you buy the the least desirable property in a stable neighborhood, you know the individuals will have to pay the rents or move, and there's no place else to move because we move it to market. But we don't push it beyond market. We don't create uh, the B B plus properties or uh, Metro C. Now, there's nothing wrong with that business model. It's a good business model. It's just not my business model. So the focus, again, is lower middle class, upper lower class, self-paying residents. We don't do a lot of subsidies. I try to do less than 10%, less than 5% subsidized renters. There's nothing wrong with it. Again, I know people that do Section 8 and they do phenomenal. It's a great business model. Again, it's just not my business model. Let's go back to the the longer pulled period a little bit. And I wanted to talk about like, when do you know it's time to sell? You're thinking through, you know, long-term holds, but when for you, is it time to sell? Well, since we're shifting from the 36 month to the seven to 10 year hold, um, I have to rely on other people that have been in that in that world. So my mentor says that they sell, not when it's ripe to sell, but if they have something else to put it into. So he has a fund. So they do a lot of 1031 or they get a fund that they'll extend for another 10 years. Uh, they have a fund that they bought properties in. So they move properties 
goes in and out of that, but it's time to sell. If you find something else is, okay, this is a property we could really capitalize on. And one way to do that, free up capital is to sell this other property where we've already maximized what we could do. We can sell a very stabilized asset to a REIT, another investor buyer that just wants another hold for cash flow. And so then you would do it at that time, but to sell only to bring in cash is something we're shifting away from. You know, a long-term hold, speak to how you're projecting that. How are you, you know, is it just always say seven to 10 years or is it deal specific? Is it just a specific business plan you're trying to stick to? It is deal specific. So the 10-year the hold, we've looked at what things have done like in Dallas, Fort Worth, where the market has been for the last 10 years and project from that. We brought in some partners on that one of the one we're buying. It's uh, 152 units. And they said, your numbers are too low. And then we talked to, since we've been in escrow, the property management company has already got our stabilized rents in place without doing the value add. So we know our numbers are, are low, but it's really difficult to do a 10-year projection because what are the rents? Do three, 4% increase over the course of 10 years. Is that going to be right or wrong? I know in Phoenix, people are saying we're going to have a 10% increase each year for the next three years. And I don't know that that's sustainable, but we'll see. And they could be right. It is very difficult to project. I mean, it is a dart. It's an educated dart, obviously. It's not completely a guess, but we look at what is the past and then where is the market going in the neighborhood? Where is the neighborhood going? Is the neighborhood going up or down right now is another thing we look at. I know one thing you had mentioned before too, or uh, in the documents you all, you know, it's like preparing for the change in the winds. Uh, you know, speak to that and what you see coming. And then obviously we're going to dive into how that's changing what we've been talking about we already, but how that's changing what you all are doing. Uh, what do you see? You know, you're preparing for the change in the winds. What do you feel coming? Well, we see some great uncertainty and this gets a little bit technical, a little bit diving into the uh, financing side, but like bridge debt was, you know, we first in January, we could have got what, 3.75 rate and a $66,000 cap where you would cap your interest rate at 2% over. So if you get a 3.75, your rate would never go about 5.75. If it does, then the insurance would kick in. That was about $66,000 to buy that cap. And then at the end of March, we ran it again and it was at just over four and it was uh, $382,000 to buy a 2% cap. And that would be put it at just over six. Well, we got it locked in now just over four. And it's going to be, I don't know what the actual cap number is, but it's still over hundred grand to buy that cap to that insurance policy. But with that uncertainty, we're seeing there's, you know, the Fed's going to raise their rates that we have uh, inflation that is, however we measure it, it's a little bit out of control in certain segments. Arizona's got the highest inflation in the nation at over 10%. And we see it everywhere. Food costs are going up. So the changes that I think that people need to be very conscientious is I see people raising rents. I see people adjusting for the interest rate. What I don't see is people being fair or re or correct on the increased expenses. We're going to have an increase of expenses that I do not see in some of the other performers. Not saying they're not doing it, but in the projections, I'm, I'm looking that they have not increased the rents or the expenses at the same rate that they increased the rents. And I believe that could come back and bite them when it comes to the, the actual operations. So it pays to really look at cost of materials, the cost of labor, you know, because rents are going up. Inflation hit, rents goes up and Inflation goes up and what goes up last are wages, right? So you got to think about that too, that you, you'd have a, a downtick in the amount of uh, renters coming in at the rates that you would that you would like. But biggest thing I see, increase in the interest rates and the increase in expenses. So buying a project right now, you know, how do you prepare or how are you prepared for that downturn or that unexpected thing that's going to happen? Let's say, you know, there's, there's a downturn and a pandemic, whatever, uh, you know, that may happen that's unexpected. What does that look like when you are underwriting? You mentioned, you know, you're, 
accounting for an increase in expenses. And I agree, we should be accounting for an increase in expenses. Uh, and so, uh, but what does that look like for you all specifically to account for a potential downturn, something that's unexpected, you know, six months after you bought the property or a year, something like that? Well, having a sizable reserves, I mean, it's good to have, have the reserves in and the, and the lenders are going to require you to have the liquidity reserves anyway for your debt. One of the things that we're going to do, and it's a little tangent to what you just mentioned, but I think is important to know is we have the supply chain issues right now. And that is, that's an ongoing challenge for supplies. So let's say you're going to remodel or update a unit um, and you're going to go from classic to new updated and you're going to bring in new cabinets, countertops, sinks, and appliances. What we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we have all those supplies in place. So we're not missing, this is a shortage of sinks. Well, now what are you going to do? You know, or there's shortage of microwaves or there's a shortage of, of ranges or, uh, you know, any other, other appliances that we want to make sure that the, the unit's supplied before we demo and remodel it. Will we miss something? Sure. Life's going to happen. There's some guesses we'll get right and some we won't. But the biggest thing is to make sure you have those cash reserves and have a good backing for covering the downturn and keep the units occupied as full as possible over the next few years, keeping you know, 90 plus. It'd be very important. You, uh, uh, sizable uh, reserves, I cannot agree more. Uh, we're all going to sleep a lot better when you have cash in the bank, right? What is it? Uh, there's a there's another guy who's a big businessman, not in real estate, but big entrepreneur. Most of us would know. And I've heard him say, without cash, your, your business crash, right? Uh, and so how do you measure that? You know, what, what's sizable? Do you have a way that that would help the listener and myself to think through, you know what, uh, you know, this, I know it's very property specific, but still, is there some way that it would help us to know, you know what, this is a good sizable reserve budget or, you know, emergency fund type? Well, the, the lender requires uh, 10% of your loan in reserves. And if you do six months, at least six months of uh, expenses in reserves, to me, that feels safe. As long as you can keep it occupied. Previously talked to you, we we're doing very heavy lift. We we're vacating the property down to 10% occupied and bringing it back full. So everything for us is, is a total shift because you're not finding those deals out there. And I don't know that those, you know, we got one huge heavy lift. We're doing a motel to apartment conversion, which we're going through what we call the valley of death right now, where we're eating up the reserves and the interest payments, hopefully start filling units here in May. But that makes you pucker a little bit, kind of concerned about whether or not, you know, how long you can weather that. So you got to have those reserves in, but having six months of expense reserves on top of your reserves required by the lender, it seems to be a pretty fair number as well as your construction, your construction reserves. Now, what the actual percentages, I guess I don't have those on the top of my head, but it just pays to have a really feels like six months, 10% of your loan and six months of cash reserves for your uh, expenses to be pretty stable. No, that's awesome. Uh, oftentimes, not everyone can say this is how we would like to look at that or how much we would like to have. So I, I'm, I appreciate that. What about a challenge right now in your business that you're facing? I think I'm the only one, but it's hard to find deals. Yeah. And we could go, we could spend all day on that. So the, one of the challenges finding deals, we all know that the increased cost of like lumber and, and electrical wiring and things like that is insane how expensive that's become. Uh, labor has been difficult to find and difficult. The wages are going to go up. And I don't know that people are accounting for the increased wages. That's one thing that we're going to see a spike because as inflation goes up, wages are going to follow. Once you find the deal, getting the, the loan together, getting the equity, getting that together is, is pretty reasonable, but getting, making sure you have all the materials in place and the labor is still a challenge. Yes. Yeah, speak to a, a couple of techniques you're using right now to find deals other than just going to other markets. I don't know. You're just making a lot of offers, looking at a lot of deals. One of the things to do, like in a larger market, it's, it's really fun to find the smaller players, the people that don't do, you know, not the big, the CBREs and Marcus and Millichap and, and uh, some of those Northmark, those large brokerages, they're going to take those properties to market and we don't buy a, on market. If it's on market, it goes to bid. We've never won a bidding war. So one of the things we've done is as we're entering uh, Albuquerque, we found a small broker, just does a couple of deals a year, few deals a year 
year and makes pretty good living on it, a solopreneur kind of. And um, same thing now in Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth, we're working with a brokerage that's brand new. They've got four brokers. They just got their first listing. You know, they're not going to have the marketing power to get uh, a lot of people to look at it. So hopefully we can find a needle in a haystack that way. Well, what's your best source for meeting new investors right now? Uh, referrals. Referrals is really where to go. Uh, we've done a little bit of LinkedIn, but I'm not very active on social media. When the pandemic hit, I canceled everything except for LinkedIn. I kept that, but most of it's just referral and just smile and dial, calling friends and family and expanding from there. One of the things we're doing now though is uh, JV. We're partnering with another group and they're going to bring in a, a big chunk of, of equity. So that's going to be fun to see how that works. What about some daily disciplines that you have that have yielded the highest return? Well, um, I'm pretty particular. So I, I daily rituals are very important to me. I do the, the first hour and last hour every day I read and I try to average a book a week. I think I did 44 books last year and I have topic specific. I, I do a one, one, five, three, one. And each quarter I pick one goal I'd like to achieve and then one skill needed to achieve that goal, five books that I'm going to read to learn about, to improve that skill. And then three audio books and then one mentor. And I do that each quarter. So the book end the day is that way. So start the day, read for one hour. I, usually, I try to get out anywhere from five to seven days a week out on the mountain bike in Arizona. We have favorable weather. You can get out almost every day. And so I do that for 40 minutes to an hour and then get to the office and I block out 90 minute blocks of time. And those 90 minute blocks are uninterrupted. So there's no email, no text, nothing. I'm working on something for 90 minutes. Could be phone calls, could be working with investors, could be underwriting a deal. And I block those out throughout the day. And then when I shut off in the evening, when I go home, I shut the work off and I spend fully present at home, which is very difficult, very hard to do. When I used to have a home office, I said I'd work from home. My wife said that I I lived at work. So I'm learning to shut it off in the evenings. Once I get home, phones are away and fully present. It's not easy. That's great advice. I love the structure. I'm learning more from different guys that have similar structures. I mean, I'm going to go back and listen to that part you just said though again, but I, I love the, the first hour, the last hour of the day you're reading, but even the intentionality of like every quarter, like there's something that you want to learn and you, you're you going to mark these books ahead of time to, to learn that skill set. But you also mentioned a, a mentor. So, so you have a, a different mentor every quarter? Is that right? Yeah. And it, it's uh, my mentor that I do, helped me previously in setting up long-term business. So I worked with him on working with investors and capital raising and then presenting. I had to do posthumous. I, I followed uh, how to do presenting. I studied Steve Jobs for f uh, three full months. I watched hundreds of hours of interviews and presentations. And, and so how I could create a better presentation, a better webinar. Um, I find most people have boring webinars. They have exciting products and they get you get through it because they're good people. But the presentations are not very good. It's just my own opinion. So I worked on that. But yeah, the different mentors, I might repeat, but like the one I'm doing now, I'm working on how to how to listen better, you know, how to be a good listener and how to, how to ask good questions. And so then uh, I've got a mentor on that, that I'm, it's a paid mentor. This is not a friend that I met. This is one I'm actually paying to teach me how to listen because I love to talk. That's incredible. Asking good questions is so important. So what's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Creating good habits. It's a number of years ago when I got into mountain biking quite seriously, just because I had joint issues and they went away, pain issues. And I was like, this is awesome. So, but just getting regiment every day, get up and follow the same process. I know that days I don't do that. Like last night, I did not read. I was, I'm doing a home remodel project and it's it's probably better to hire it out, but I do it because it's therapy. So we're remodeling our kitchen. So I, I, it got pretty late. So I didn't read last night and I felt it this morning. So I got up and read. Following a structure, it, it creates, and Darren Hardy talks about this. It creates that compound effect. If you do a little bit every day, like when I started mountain biking a little bit every day, now it's amazing how much I can do it, you know, mid fifties and I can still crank it out pretty good. How do you like to give back? Well, first of all, this family, big at giving to family, taking care of the family 
family. The employees are uh, mostly family, either children or in-laws. Then I also have a uh, an organization, a church that I belong to. I'm very active in the in that church community. And then my wife is um, she's giving by nature. So whenever somebody needs them, like if somebody's something happened, she's quick to make a meal. And so I get involved with that. How can we how can we take care of them? Bring them a meal. We make thousands of cupcakes every year and bring those to people for different gifts. So it's really on the personal level. It's not on a big, you know, I wrote a $10,000 check here or this, that's all private, but I giving back individual and people in need is really where my wife has really shined on that. And I kind of piggyback on her on that. That's awesome. Uh, Bruce, it's been an honor to catch up with you again. And even to think through a little more in depth about, you know, having that long-term plan, right? Or seven to 10 years. I mean, a whole period, uh, you know, thinking through that versus this quick turnaround that most investors are, or it seems that, you know, a lot are looking for, uh, especially a lot of active guys right now, they're, I mean, hoping to turn around in 18 months, right? And or investors. Uh, and so just a different way of thinking, but also focusing on cash flow and the reserve component. I, I like how you laid that out there and helps us, I think, especially uh, newer operators that are listening. And reserves are so important, right? So uh, thinking about that sizable uh, re- uh, reserve budget, but also in that daily routine, is crucial. I I have also felt that, and I've probably not been as structured as it sounds like you are. Uh, but it's still been so helpful, and it is that that's those small, consistent actions, right? Uh, they pay off. Uh, it's amazing. You know, it feels like today you didn't do, you know, you didn't get anywhere. But man, six months from now, all those little actions, you've covered a lot of ground, right? Uh, and so, just grateful for that, right? And exposing that to the listeners and myself. Uh, so, how can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you? Okay, before I, I want to finish with one thought that you had mentioned that going from short-term to long-term. I have a business mentor. Uh, Mark S.A. Smith has been my mentor for years and on the business side. And he told me one day that quit using your business to feed your adrenaline. Go jump out of an airplane, go mountain biking, go hiking, go do something else. And so that's why the shift from the short-term, that feeds the adrenaline. Long-term is wealth creation. And that's really what we're looking for. And uh, the best way to reach me, Whitney, is to go to uh, bakerson.com. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.